0: Listeners, welcome to the St. Andrews CMR podcast. This podcast is in collaboration with students and staff at the University of St. Andrews. At the Center for Minorities Research, we explore the complexities, challenges, and opportunities, continuities and discontinuities, unity and rupture of the everyday lives of minorities in Scotland and beyond. After the end of the Cold War and German unification. 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the German Democratic Republic. The Soviet satellite state, which existed from 1949 to 1990, continues to fascinate researchers in history, political theory, and the research of film and literature. My project focuses on work by queer people, those who fall under the umbrella of LGBTQIA+, the modern view of the GDR, By most accounts, a socialist, totalitarian regime tells us queer people were repressed, isolated, and invisible in society. But what is the truth? Can we view the socialist regime as a queer space? Or were there simply no queer people represented in literature or other media during this time? Researching minorities often depends on categories. Certain identities like race, class, sexuality, and gender are politicised meaning the political structures of a society either privilege certain groups or limit the rights of others. Whatever the situation, human beings obsess over categories and identities. My name is Sam Osborne. I'm a cisgender gay white man. I'm also left-handed, dyspraxic, student of German and of literary theory, but these traits, although they can describe who I am, don't define me in the same way. This podcast seeks to investigate whether identity really is just a system of oppression and privilege, or whether it is something more, by reconstructing the pasts of those with similar experiences, and seeing things from their perspectives. Today's episode is on Charlotte von Marsdorf, a trans woman who lived in Germany from 1928 to 2002. She lived through the rise of Nazism, and much for the GDR afterwards, becoming a central figure in the small but active gay rights movement under socialism. As José Munoz tells us, when the historian of queer experience attempts to document a queer past, there is often a gatekeeper who will labour to invalidate the historical fact of queer lives, present, past and future. It is rare that the queer experience is documented with evidence, and so... As I often have to, researchers recognise the need to decode historical queer narratives, which are often dismissed, to understand the experiences of queer people whose identities remained hidden for much, if not all, of their lives, the experiences of which are erased all too easily by the cishet majority. It is surprising, then, and incredibly fortunate that Charlotta has written such a frank and honest portrayal of her experience as a trans woman in the GDR which comes to us definitively as a trans-narrative. She was born ten years after the end of the First World War to aristocratic parents Max Berfelder and Gretchen Gaup in Berlin-Mahlsdorf, which was then part of the Weimar Republic. Her father Max was what is known as an Alterkämpfer, someone who fought in the First World War, who had now joined the NSDAP, the Nazi Party. During Charlotte's childhood, he imposes strict binary gender roles on his children. At age seven or eight, she tries on her mother's school uniform, and her father catches her. He beats her with a riding crop and tells her, You are not a girl, you are to become a soldier. Although Charlotte presents as male at this point, he's physically abusive towards her when she deviates from the strict form of masculinity which he intends for her. As she writes in her memoir, he had his own ideas what a real boy looked like. As she puts it, I was too pretty, too delicate. My facial features were gentle, and a feminine tenderness lent me a soft disposition. In an attempt to uphold his reputation, Max disciplines her in the hope she will eventually conform to his strict conception of what constitutes masculinity. He is abusive to her sisters and mother also, but Charlotte is treated especially harshly. His plan for her is to become a younger Kempfer, a young fighter, by joining the Hitler Youth and then the SS, which were exclusively male organisations. His mania, motivated by his belief he could turn me into a young fighter, meant he would go to absurd lengths to correct my outward appearance. If, for example, my hair turned to little golden curls in the rain, he would order me to submerge my head in cold water and comb my hair straight. It had to be kept short and parted to the side. The military cut. But I was not a young fighter, she says. I didn't even feel like a young man. Because of the abuse suffered from her father, Charlotta had a mostly unhappy childhood. She writes in her memoir that she believed from a young age that she would grow up to become a woman just like her mother and her friends. However, her father repeatedly denied her the right to do so. Insisting that she join the Hitler Youth, Charlotta saw the Hitler Youth as strong, tough and aggressive. The opposite of who she felt she was, but what her father might view as the ideal young man. Max's view of masculinity is intrinsically tied to patriotism, to nationalism, to his idea of the Third Reich, and Charlotta, who did not see the appeal in becoming a soldier, by refusing masculinity, Max believes that she also rejects National Socialism. However, in spite of this opposition, she was able to find allyship in her mother and uncle who lived with them. She also seeks out chosen family in the Levinsons, a Jewish family with whom she works as a teenager, which may have served as inspiration for her later activism and career as curator of the Gründerzeit Museum. When Charlotta's mother was pregnant with her in 1927, her great uncle Joseph sent her father a letter in which he politely, but clearly instructed Max to divorce Gretchen and move out. Joseph, Charlotte's uncle, owned the house and still lived with them until his death. But when he heard this news, Charlotte's father flew into a rage, throwing the letter at Joseph's feet and threatening his wife with a pistol. If I have to divorce you, he said, I'm pulling the trigger. Fortunately, Joseph intervened, lifting Max's arm upwards, so the bullet is redirected. Later in life, Charlotta's uncle provides her with much-needed respite, taking her on trips and spending time with her away from her father. He ensures that Charlotta attends a different school, where she would not have to join the Hitler Youth, and Charlotta refers to him as her true father. In 1944, Uncle Joseph dies, and as Max becomes more violent, forcing Gretchen to divorce him, but meaning that she is now extremely vulnerable, He returns to the house and threatens Charlotte with a gun, locking her in Josef's old bedroom. He will kill her and her mother if she doesn't come to live with him. He gives her one hour to decide. Sitting in her nightshirt in the dark room, she notices the kitchen equipment is laid out neatly on the bed. During the blitz, the kitchen would normally be badly affected, and so the kitchen is cleared out every night to make sure if there is a raid, glass doesn't make it into the food. She sets her eyes on the massive rolling pin. Suddenly, she remembers her uncle kept spare keys for every room in the house. With only a few minutes left, she finds the key and slowly opens the door. There, waiting for Charlotta to make her decision, with his revolver on the stool next to him, she notices the silhouette of her father lit only by the moonlight. She creeps up behind him, slowly and carefully places the gun to one side, and brings the rolling pin down on his head, once, twice, three times, killing him. She is psychiatrically evaluated and sent to prison, but released only a year later, in 1945. When the war ended, change came to Germany. Through a series of international summits, the Allied Powers of Britain, the United States, France and the Soviet Union divided Germany into four occupation zones. Charlotta finds herself in the Soviet zone, which would eventually become the German Democratic Republic in 1949, otherwise known as East Germany. With her father and uncle now dead, and Charlotta being the oldest child, she inherits her uncle's house and continues to live there. Charlotta's mother, Gretchen, and her sisters had moved in full-time with Charlotta's aunt, Louisa, Charlotte's aunt herself was queer, a lesbian who had become friends with the renowned sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld. At Louisa's house, she had always been allowed to wear dresses and ball gowns away from the prying eyes of her father. Louisa also showed Charlotta her copy of Hirschfeld's monograph, The Transvestiten, the transvestites in English, the first work to differentiate trans people of any description from what were known then as homosexual deviants. Hirschfeld also normalised homosexuality and removed sexual difference from the realm of disease. By reading his work, Charlotta finally felt understood, and she chose this time, at 20 years old, in 1948, to come out to her mother. Do you know, mother, she explains to her, I am actually your oldest daughter. In response, her mother laughs. Oh, don't talk rubbish. Later, Charlotta reads to her passages from Hirschfeld's book. When it was clear to her that Charlotta felt as a woman by nature, her mother said, Gosh, that's all very hard for me to understand as a real woman. But if you're happy with that, that's the main thing. Her mother might not have understood at first, but she and Charlotta continued to have a close relationship. From this point onwards, Charlotta began to dress in feminine clothing and changed her name to Lotchen, a gender-neutral form of Lottie. Eventually, she would go by Charlotte, and because of her ladylike behaviour and her house in Mahlsdorf, she finally shared her father's name, Berfelder, and became Charlotte von Mahlsdorf. As times changed, so did the house in Mahlsdorf. Now living alone, she was free to do what she liked with the space. Her uncle's collection of relics from Imperial Germany was no longer confined just to his old bedroom in the cellar, But now, expanded, Charlotte's personal collection of antiques took over the whole house. By her own admission, Charlotte was a solitary individual. She had her books, her antiques, and the cleaning of her house to keep her occupied. But occasionally, she needed human contact. As a teenager, she had worked for Herr Bier, an antique collector. There she was introduced to Helmut Levinson, a young Jewish boy who also worked there. Although five years older at 17 years old, Charlotte notices he was barely taller than she was, and the beers referred to him as our little Levinson. She remembers his striking, dark, pensive, and altogether fearful eyes from which he watched her as timidly as a deer. She falls instantly in love with him. Tragically, Levinson and his family are taken by the Gestapo, in all likelihood to a concentration camp. She realizes that she will never see him again. Her anxiety that she may experience a similar loss shifts into determination to protect those who are marginalized and to ensure it does not happen again. Keeping Levinson's memory alive, Charlotta resolves to always, in her words, take the sides of the whores on the street with their dreams and ambitions, sexually precocious rent boys and hustlers, the lesbians and gays, the Sinter and Romany people, and of course, the Jews. In the 1970s, she makes good on this promise. Although possible, it becomes increasingly difficult for Charlotta to meet others like her. Gay bars were either closed or observed by the state in the GDR, and before the construction of the Berlin Wall, Charlotte's Aunt Louisa moved to England, meaning she is now separated from the only chosen family she has. In the 1970s, she becomes involved with the newly formed Homosexuelle Interessengemeinschaft Berlin, a nascent gay rights organisation. Immediately after decriminalisation was a difficult time for queer people, as the decriminalisation of gay sex in 1968 did very little to combat societal stigma or feelings of isolation, and the harsh environment drove many to suicide. Becoming aware of intense loneliness, which affected many queer people at this time, she offers them a place to stay, referring to those who lived in her house as her children. As a security measure, the members of the house never give their last names, but this unites them, at least under one roof, if not under one name. After being protected by her mother, uncle, and aunt in childhood, as an adult, Charlotte opens up her home to members of the Ha'ibe who have nowhere else taking on a motherly role. The Ha'ibe was active for only five years, but as well as allowing queer people to socialise, provided education for its members on issues such as how to come out, sexual disease prevention, and how best to engage in wider activism. Using the museum as a front for what was going on inside, The Mahlsdorf House offered a place to establish a community of sorts, albeit not a community which was truly exempt from state intervention. Charlotte would be questioned at the house on several occasions, and their meetings were frequently observed by Stasi operatives. The interior of Charlotte's cellar is taken from the Mullah a gay, lesbian and transvestite pub from the former Weimar Republic. On her first visit... She described it as a place where everything emulated my mentality. As she notes in her memoir, the bar's interior was torn out in 1963. However, she salvaged what remained of it and transported the interior furnishings, including the bar counter itself, from berlin Mitte to Mahlsdorf and refitted it to her cellar. Of course, it's not insignificant that the mullah a place to escape the heteronormative society of the GDR, Is built into the house's cellar where she sheltered as a child from her father. She writes We crowded into the Mullachitze. Up to fifty people sat at the bar, on the floor, or gossiped with one another on the window sill. The other rooms in the cellar next door are made into a ballroom, and then, in her typical sing song way, lesbian mothers, gay fathers, workers, actors, engineers, doctors, we all gathered together in the Mullachitze. Once merely a reminder of a more permissive time, symbolising a queer past. Now, once again, the Mulaqatza is a space for building chosen queer family in the present to prepare for a queer future. The sheer number and variety of people who now gather regularly in Charlotte's cellar dispels the isolation felt by many queer people at that time and allows them to normalise their own queerness. As the organisation grew, it divided into separate gay and lesbian movements, but was forced to disband in 1978 after one meeting attracted over 100 people. There would be no more parties at the Marsdorf House, or Charlotta would be facing prison. In the 1990s, Charlotta moved from Germany to Sweden, and the museum closed for some time. She had started to feel uncomfortable in Germany in the wake of a neo-Nazi attack on the house during a party, in 1991 Years later, while on a visit to Berlin, Charlotte had died in 2002 from heart failure. She leaves behind a complicated legacy. She never underwent gender affirming surgeries or medical transition of any kind, but still came to be known as a woman, defining how many people came to view the distinction between sex and gender. Many people also find her frank and destigmatized view of SM practices refreshing and liberating. However, her comments were often controversial. In 2000, she lost much of her support from the Berlin LGBT community when she remarked the fact that lesbians and gays can't have children is, after all, quite natural. Nature, too, seeks out what it can use, what can reproduce and what can't. If we look at it like that, if lesbians and gays did have children, then we'd just have a lot more unemployed people today. Further controversy arose when it was revealed that Charlotte had collaborated with the secret police in the 1970s. There is no evidence to suggest she gave the Stasi much useful information. Furthermore, the Stasi had immense power in the GDR and it is suspected that she was allowed to keep her museum after the Haibé disbanded only because she provided them with information. If the queer community were truly emancipated in the GDR, as Charlotte had worked her whole life to achieve, there would be no reason to assume she opposed the regime purely because of her gender identity. In fact, when we understand that Levinson was taken away from her by the Nazis at a formative stage in her life, and the GDR officially were understood to oppose National Socialism, Fascism, and the system which caused Charlotte so much pain early on in her life, perhaps we might feel a little more sympathetic to what motivated her actions. Thank you for listening to another episode of the CMR podcast. For more information, visit the St. Andrews CMR website, Facebook or Twitter. See you next time. Bye.